You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. I'm Brian Sullivan in once again for Kelly. Here's what's ahead on The Exchange. Countdown to the Fed. Will Jay Powell finally blink and his recession all but guaranteed? Paul McKelly is here to give us his take on it all. And this won't help. A potential diesel disaster. Prices soaring as supplies reach critically low levels in many areas. Politicians blaming the companies. We'll lay out what's really going on. And a broad range of companies set to release their numbers. We'll get you ready for Pfizer, Uber, and others. All that and more ahead, but right now, let's begin by a man who is smiling because your 49ers didn't just win, they smoked the Rams. It's a trend, right? They've won every, every regular season game for the last eight. That McCaffrey kid's got a future. That Christian, he's, he's not bad. Throw, he's catch, bad. and run for touchdowns. It's a pretty good combination right there. Uh, yes, to your point. Uh, it was red and gold for me about this weekend, and it's red for the markets right now, but not in a good way. I mean, the, the Dow Industrial is down 145 points, or one half of 1%. The S&P is at 3871, down 29 points, down three quarters of 1%. To give you an idea, it's been generally negative all day today. At the highs of the session, we were still down about eight points, and at the lows of the session, down 38. To give you some context around where that trading range sits right now, the Nasdaq Composite Index off 118 points, 10,983, over 1% losses. We're still off the session low right now, so keep that in mind. A place to keep a close eye on right now from a macro perspective is the energy trade. Now, oil prices are down on the day, and there's some talk now about possible hypothetical windfall profit taxes for certain energy companies. We've talked about them in Europe, potentially. Maybe it's even here in the U.S. Well, those energy stocks right now generally, even though the sector overall is negative, floating between negative and positive. The energy sector spider, ticker XLE, is up one half of 1%. And the reason I want to call your attention to that is because this little span right here Mm. is now working on an 11-day winning streak. An 11-day winning streak for this sector spider that tracks energy. It's up 12% in that span. Keep an eye on those energy names, despite the lower prices in oil today. Also, semiconductor is a huge focus. A number of them reporting results so far this week here. We've got on semiconductor out this morning. It was generally a good report. Better than expected profits and revenues, but the fourth quarter outlook fell shy of some analyst estimates. That's the reason why it's the worst performing stock in the S&P, down nearly 8%. Intel's also lower. Advanced Micro and Qualcomm both report results this week, so keep an eye on those names. And the Vector Semiconductor ETF is down 1.5% right now. And the stock of the day is win. A huge gainer to the upside for the S&P 500. Up about 10% right now this after billionaire investor and casino magnate Tillman Fertitta, a name a lot of folks on CNBC know, has now through a regulatory filing disclosed a north of 6% stake in Wynn Resorts. That makes him, Brian, as you know, the second biggest individual shareholder in Wynn, second only to co-founder Elaine Wynn herself. Watch those Wynn Resorts shares. Brian, I'll send things back over to you. Yeah, news that we had this morning, Dom, and it's a big play and a big purchase for Tillman, who's been uh, building the stake for a while now, I'm told. Dom, thank you very much. All right, why don't we start the hour with, what else? The Federal Reserve. On Wednesday, we get their latest decision on rates. They're expected to raise them again, likely by three-fourths of 1%. But it's more about what the Fed says about the future than what they do on Wednesday. So let us dive into that. Joining us now is Paul McCulley, former chief economist at PIMCO, now an adjunct professor at Georgetown's McDonough School of Business, or as I call them, the pride of Virginia's Shenandoah Valley, Stanton's own Paul McCulley. <laughs> Paul, it's good to have you back on. What do you good expect? Good to see you, Brian. Thanks. What do you expect from the Fed? What would you like to see from the Fed? 
Hopefully there'll be some congruence between those two things. Uh, I expect them to do 75, and I think all the focus will be on uh, the December meeting. And I think that Chair Powell will pre-announce that they are stepping down to 50 from 75 uh, in December. So I think that's why the marketplace has been rallying, and I think that will be validated. And so that will be a good time, if you will. At the same time, I think that Mr. Powell will uh, leaven, if you will, the enjoyment by stressing that they have a lot more tightening to do in 2023, that they don't want to have the market do what it did last summer and have too much exuberance. So I think he's going to deliver what the market's expecting, 75 and a pre-announcement of a step down to 50 in December. But I think he's going to press uh, the outlook for next year uh, to hire for longer. So I think that's the combo he's going to try to work with uh, on Wednesday. If you're right, and you probably are, is the market going <laughs> to like that? Bond market, stock market? I think it will validate what the markets have done over the last couple weeks. Uh, so I think that we will restore uh, the confidence uh, of some decent prospect, perhaps, of a soft landing. So I think it'll be good news from that standpoint. Uh, but for those who are hoping that uh, what he does tomorrow will de facto mark the end of the tightening cycle, I think he will push really hard back against that, uh, because if they even give the slightest hint that uh, what they're going to do for the rest of the year is it for this cycle, uh, then I think they would get far too much easing in financial conditions. Uh, so I don't think that he's going to give everybody what they want, uh, but I think he will give the market what it needs. Well, apparently, and that's a, that's a good kick in the inflation teeth. Um, the three-month, 10-year spread, I know it sounds crazy, has basically 100% recession-predicting historical thing. I mean, that doesn't mean it's going to happen again. But do you believe what that part of the bond curve is telling us, Paul? Is recession inevitable? It's not inevitable, but I take that signal incredibly important. It is profound versus the inversion we got between the two-year and the 10-year earlier in the year, and people kept saying, you know, recession, recession, recession. I think once you invert the money market sector, basically uh, the rates that you get on stuff that always trades at par versus the 10-year, that is a huge warning signal that the Fed needs to slow down the pace, not stop. Uh, but definitely slow down. So I take it incredibly seriously. And I think the FOMC does as well. You can't say that three months to 10 year is just, you know, the market doing what it does. No, the Fed put the three months where they're putting it. We're hearing a lot of stuff about inflation. Paul, windfall, profits, taxes, record. Cor By the way, every industry has record profits because they had record demand. And they didn't have to discount because everybody had money in their pocket. So that's a separate issue. <laughs> to, to what, if, you had to, if I had to say one thing was the reason for inflation, how would you answer? You only go give me one thing, Brian? Yeah, I'm stingy. I'm Scrooge. 
I think actually I will go with the supply side of the economy if you constrain me on that question in that, you know, people think in terms of monetary and fiscal policy really stimulated the demand side and that uh, contribute to the inflation. I think that's true. But even if we'd had more temperate monetary and fiscal stimulus, particularly fiscal stimulus, uh, I think that we would have had uh, a an inflationary uh, response because of the plus supply side, which is why I'm optimistic that as we are moving out in time and the supply side corrects itself and demand slows, uh, that mm -hmm. this inflation surge will, in the fullness of time, prove to be transitory. Oh, there he goes. You know, speaking of transit, by the way, <laughs> everything you're saying I agree with unless we have a nationwide rail strike, right? If we have a nationwide rail strike in a month, that's a whole different inflation story. And Jay Powell better put on his, you know, conjunction junction engineer hat and start driving a train. Supply that would, shocks that matter. Would that would that, that would be a shock, and I think it would be a negative shock for the economy on top of slowing on the back of monetary tightening. So I don't think it would have to be something that Chair Powell would have to respond to. Uh, he can't drive a train. I think you just have to take it as a given. Yeah. Uh, and if anything, that would certainly weaken the economy. So uh, even though it might increase inflation in the very short run, uh, I don't think it would require a response at all. If anything, yeah. it would make them kinder and gentler, I think, because that would be a nasty, nasty shock, oh. Brian. And it's coming. I mentioned it because it's, it's not impossible that it does happen. It's less than a month from now. We'll see. Paul McCulley, appreciate it all the time, my friend. Take care. Good to see you. All right. Let's bring it back now to the macro markets and your money. And if we don't get any kind of pivot from the Fed, can this nice little stock rally roll on? Joining us is Chris Crisanti, chief equity strategist and senior portfolio manager at MAI Capital Management. Chris, you heard what Paul has to say. Paul's a lot more right than he's, than he's not right. Um, sounds like he's a little more in the hawkish camp. What would that matter for equity markets? Well, Brian, it's nice to be with you again. And I hadn't heard the word transitory used in a bit. So so he's he's resuscitating it, and I hope he's right. Um, I have to say, though, I'm encouraged by the market movements we've seen in the last several weeks. I, I think the best way to look at it, Brian, is that the market is hurting in all the right places. Say, Let's say you've been in an accident, and you go into surgery, and then a day later, the doctor comes in and says, how are you feeling? And you say, well, it hurts here, and it hurts there. And, and, and she smiles and she says, that means you're getting better. And, and I think the market is acting that way now. It's obviously hurting the market now is large cap tech. But I think it's actually quite healthy to see the, the leadership for the last at least half a decade, which is large cap tech, really taking it on the chin finally. So we have the capitulation of really the last man standing. So and what we need to see also is we need to appreciate that the rest of the market is doing pretty well. General Motors, it bottomed in early July. Costco bottomed in May. Uh, believe it or not, and this is my favorite example, the home builder ETF, even in the face of rising rates, bottomed in the middle of June and is now 10% higher, even though mortgage rates are now over 7%. So, so with the exception of tech, which I think needs to suffer more, uh, I think the market is actually acting pretty reliably. Now, this could all disappear yeah. tomorrow, but it's acting like it's making a bottom. So, you know, I find that encouraging. 
Yeah, and I found this encouraging, and I don't want to give too much away from my RBI tomorrow morning on Worldwide Exchange, 5 a.m. Tune in. But uh, Ryan Dietrich of Carson Investment Research showing that November, the last 10 years, not October, but November has actually been the best performing month for the S&P 500. It's that, if you can't see it, Chris, but our audience can see it. It's that thing that we sure, highlighted that- to the right. Do you take into account, I mean, it's a neat stat, it's random but interesting, but do you, does it matter to you? Well, and, and maybe it's random, Brian, and maybe it's not. I, I mean, historically, the market has performed well after elections, especially mid, mid-year elections in, you know, between the presidencies. So uh, I actually think that the, the election next week could be the catalyst to put some uncertainty behind the market. Look, the Nasdaq's down 31% now from its highs. I mean, there, there's been a lot of damage done. And the important thing for investors to remember is that the market is not the economy. It will bottom first. And right now we're living through the beauty of low expectations. There's nobody who's pounding the table on stocks. So that's those are the things that bottoms are made of. Yeah, they are. OK, very quickly here. Give us a stock that we want to own right now. We like opportunity. I'll tell you one that you're all going to hate, which I think is a good Love sign. Love that. A home builder, NVR. Hmm. It's a terrific company. Made it through the 08 uh, downturn without even losing money. And that's because they don't really take any land risk at all. They reported mediocre earnings last week, which was expected because of the crummy housing market right now. The stock jumped 5%. Look, these home builders have been left for dead. And unless you think we're going into a deep recession, which I don't believe, uh, I think they could be pockets of value going ahead. Chris Crisanti, MAI. Always a pleasure, Chris. We'll see you soon. Take care. Good. Thanks, Brian. NVR. All right. And for more ideas on how to get the most out of your investments, join us tomorrow for CNBC Your Money. Hear from some top financial experts and our own Jim Cramer. You can scan the QR code on the screen or register at CNBCEvents.com. All right, on deck, are parts of America about to run out of diesel fuel? And would a big oil windfall profit tax actually work? Both of those ahead, plus shots, semis, and sharing rides well, the numbers to watch and the narratives to know. But Pfizer, NXP, and Uber report their numbers. Stick around. All right, welcome back. Well, don't look now, but a perfect storm is underway in the diesel fuel market. Reserve inventories have dropped to their lowest level since 1951. That's right, the time of Harry Truman. Supplies are down for a lot of reasons. Refineries can't get enough, particularly to the Northeast. Russian imports, of course, they're blocked. And now low levels on the Mississippi River are screwing up shipments in the Midwest. So how will this all play out this winter? CBC's Lorianne LaRocco has the logistics latest. And Tom Closa joining us now with the Consumer Impact, co-founder of the Oil Price Information Service. Lorianne, let's start with you and the logistics. A lot of blame going around. It looks like D, all the above. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, you've got this three-point storm that, that you just, like, talked about. So what happens here and why it's such a problem is that we have an acute diesel supplies in the nor- Northeast. And so when you have the drought-stricken Mississippi and then you have uh, the possibility of a rail strike, all of this then moves all of the, if you will, the trade to the rails, which then contributes to the higher prices. And diesel inventories, as you pointed out, are the lowest since 1951. And the greatest shortfall is here in the Northeast, including New York and New Jersey. Yeah, the Northeast, let's be honest, Lorianne, the Northeast, we're always the short end of the stick. I mean, uh, because we're, we're at the end of the stick, there's no pipelines, 
Refineries aren't coming online, correct? So now we look to ships. You did just get some comments moments ago from the Department of Homeland Security about the Jones Act. What can you tell us? Sure. So folks that don't know what the Jones Act is, it pretty much prohibits a foreign vessel to go from one U.S. port to another U.S. port. And so the Homeland Security, they said that they would only grant a waiver if the Jones to the Jones Act if the proposed shipments are in the interests of national defense and after CAFO evaluation of an issue. Under the law, waivers that do not meet the standard must be reviewed by a case-by-case basis, meaning that a individual tanker would have to approach the uh, Department of, uh, of Homeland Security to see if they would be allowed to move that critical fuel. Yeah, that would be an interesting development if that Jones Act, which a lot of people call outdated, but then we also still need a U.S. maritime industry. Lorianne LaRocco, thank you very much. Important story here. All right, let's now turn to Tom Closer for what this might mean for the consumer and the markets. Tom, um, is it possible certain parts or, you know, distributors run out of diesel? You know, it's possible, but I, I think the fact that we've got this warning signal uh, this month or at the end of October and beginning of November, I think it helps. There's tremendous profit motive out there to get refineries back in gear and running. And October, as, as we mentioned weeks ago, had the most refinery maintenance in the United States probably in a number of years. So you know, we've got a chance this month. And I would suggest that if we don't, we may see some Jones Act waivers next month. In, in December, because once you get to December and January, there's really no difference between the molecules and heating oil and diesel. And then you might be sending a lot of diesel to be burning up in the chimneys of homeowners in New England. And they're yeah. already paying six dollars a gallon. A lot of our viewers and listeners have heard of the Jones Act. Lorianne did a good job of explaining it. But what they may not understand, and please, if this is wrong, say, hey, Sully, you're wrong. It can be it's hard to believe it can be cheaper to ship something because the Jones Act from Houston to Istanbul than it is from Houston to New York, correct? Yeah, you, you can go around the world sometimes on what a Jones Act uh, vessel might charge. Back with Sandy, we had things that were going from the Gulf Coast to Savannah or the lower Atlantic, and they were 15 or 20 cents a gallon. So I think it's about 18 cents right now to use a Jones Act vessel. There's only about 55 of them. And they tend to be time chartered. So, you know, even if you had the money and the wherewithal to move it, uh, there aren't many of them available. They, they tend to be uh, taken uh, almost like you would yeah. grab pieces of a monopoly board. Later today, the president's going to talk about potentially a windfall tax, a profits tax on windfall profits for big oil. Um, it's nothing new, by the way. We had one from 1980 to 1986. That led to lower U.S. production, actually increased imports. So Congress eventually scrapped it because imported oil didn't pay the tax. So people were just importing more, producing less. There were calls in 2006, again, by some members of Congress now. And this new current this law has been around, or at least a proposal, for about a year so it's probably not a lot new here. Obviously, the election's in a week, Tom. You can muddle it up with the politics all you want. Would it work? Uh, I lived during the price controls in the 70s. I was a young man. But uh, I remember they just created a lot of chaos and a lot of new oil and old oil. I would say this, though. You know, refiners can't disguise the fact that they've been having just epic, epic times. The price of diesel in the Northeast has been averaging about $184 a barrel this month. 
And crude oil has been very pedestrian, about $87. So there are windfall profits. There's no question about it. But you have windfall profits at Pfizer and Moderna as well. And, you know, we need vaccines. We need diesel. That's what we need in the next month. Yeah. And as I just tweeted out, automaker, pretty much every industry outside of hotels and restaurants had record profits because of unlimited demand and no need to discount because low rates and everybody had money. Tom, close. That's a different argument. Tom, we appreciate it as always. Thank you very much. All right. Still ahead. Are you one of the lucky ones who owe zero dollars in federal income tax this year? Well, you might be. Robert Frank is here to tell us who is getting a break from Uncle Sam and why that number could soon be on the move. And as we had to break, take a look at the Dow heat map. Intel, Amgen, Coca-Cola, Dragon, the Blue Chips, Travelers and Goldman. Some of the outperformers. Market's down overall, but we're back right after this. All right, welcome back to The Exchange. And by the way, happy Halloween, everybody. Be out there. Have some fun trick-or-treating tonight. All right, the Dow, it's down more tricks than treats, I guess. NASDAQ down three-quarters of 1%. But here's the treat. The market is not on its lows, down 275 at one point. Not that interesting. Here are some of the movers at this hour that are interesting. Hanes Brands. We all got to wear underwear. Seeing a move lower after being downgraded underweight from overweight at Wells Fargo. Firm citing potential headwinds for the company's debt leverage position. Global payments among the worst performers on the S&P 500. That company reporting record earnings and earnings rather in line with revenue, but revenue was a bit better. It says it sees ongoing FX and COVID headwinds. And First Solar getting a nice boost after Bank of America raised its price target to 165 a share from 138. The firm maintaining their buy on First Solar and. Oof, Facebook's decline just continues. Meta stock down again, another five, well, six percent. Stocks at 93 bucks. We could throw up a longer term chart. That's pretty soon to be the lowest price since 2015. We're already at the lowest since 2016. Well, that's only one year. Anyway, we're getting to the point we're going to wipe out seven years of investor gains in Facebook. Meta. Let's go now to the very real Tyler Matheson for a CNBC News update. I am so not meta. Brian, thank you very much. Uh, A former Michigan police officer who shot a black motorist in the back of the head will stand trial for second-degree murder. A jury will decide whether Christopher Shure's use of deadly force against Patrick Leola was necessary. A defense attorney says Shure was defending himself when Leola would not give up. CDC Director Rochelle, Dr. Rochelle Walensky is having a second bout of COVID in under two weeks, despite being up to date on her vaccinations. She first tested positive October 21st and had mild symptoms before testing negative once again. Uh, Walensky received a new positive test yesterday and is now isolating and working from home. And SpaceX plans to launch its huge Starship rocket into orbit for the first time in early December. The flight will be a key step towards flying NASA astronauts to the moon in the next few years. Starship prototypes like the ones seen here have been under development for years. And on the news tonight, new polls showing just how tight the race to control the Senate is. That's tonight at 7 with Shep Smith. 7 o'clock Eastern, Bri, back to you. Yep, an election eight days from now. Tyler, I've heard something about it. Tyler, thank you very much. Got it. All right, still ahead. Jeff Kilberg is here on what to buy now. He's got a stock and earnings exchange. And will Uber 
ever stop losing money? All that's next. All right, welcome back. It is time now for Earnings Exchange, where we give you the story and the trade and three big reports set to hit the tape tomorrow or tonight, too. Today, we look at NXP Semi, Pfizer, and Uber. All right, let's kick it off here. Stock number one, and that is NXP. They are out after the bell tonight. Stocks had a rough run, down 35% on the year. Christina Partsonevelis has the story. And Jeff Kilberg, founder and CEO of KKM Financial, has your trade today. Christina, kick it off. Well, with NXP, the lucky, the positive thing is that it has a lot of exposure to auto. And like we saw with Texas Instruments as well as on semi today, auto seems to be quite resilient when it comes to being a business vertical compared to uh, PCs and handsets. More specifically for NXP, over 50% of the revenue actually comes from the auto sector. So that's often the story they're telling analysts, the story they're telling the media, that that's what's going to help them, you know, uh, drive through this correction. You also have the fact, too, that NXP has um, about 80% of its products at 52-week lead times, which means there's still a supply issue uh, to customers. And then lastly, we'll be looking for any revision, any revision to the outlook because, uh, just as I mentioned at the top there, you have a big correction. And analog companies like NXP are still going through it. They're not completely oblivious to the correction. You saw that in the stock price. So they, too, may uh, start to, to uh, lower their estimates. And that's what we'll be looking for for Q4 as well as the full year. All right. So, Jeff, speaking of lowering, the valuation has also come down. And you think this stock, while it's had some ups and downs, the earnings does look cheap, at least compared to some of its competitors. And that's right. So I want to be a buy here. NXP is really interesting. To Christina's point, the exposure has automotive certainly is its focus and more of the biggest percentage of its revenue. But it also has a control and aspect of smart appliances. We also look at the way the next gen wireless, everything that we want more of, everything on demand in the world, this gig world we live in, NXP is delivering. So I think if you look at the PE ratio of 16, it is cheap compared to Broadcom or NVIDIA, but it's a different company. So I know that a lot of analysts out there, Sully, from Oppenheimer, have taken down their price targets, but they're still overweight and they still like, and technically it is poised to take its 50-day moving average. So I like this $38 billion semiconductor because it is slightly different than owning the broad swath SMH. All right, we're going to move on now to stock number two. Christina, thank you very much. And that stock is Uber. Their numbers, don't call them earnings because there's no earnings the earnings, they're out tomorrow. More losses are in store for the company, but the pace of those losses should drop considerably and everybody is looking for sales to jump. Deirdre Bosa joining us now with more on Uber. What are we looking for, Deirdre? Brian, you set it up so well. Don't look for gap earnings. However, look at its profitability, its trajectory, how it's getting there on a unit economic basis. That can be tricky for this company because they report and they like to focus on adjusted EBITDA. So are they getting closer? It's also messy because they have all of these other investments in very volatile companies like Aurora and Grab and a number of others. Another thing to look for is regulatory pressures. Those are back after the Department of Labor um, proposed a change to gig economy worker classification. We'll see how Uber is thinking of that. And of course, there's just simple rider and delivery demand. How is that holding up given the softening macro backdrop? Um, Usually they give some color. We'll be looking at guidance for that, Brian. Yeah, okay, Deirdre, you said a lot there. A couple things, and I'm, I'm going to put you a little bit on the spot and feel free to say, you know, shove it, Sullivan, which is, I don't think, has any company ever lost more money than Uber? I'm trying to kind of think, like, it's been years of just massive loss. I wonder if they've set some kind of a record. Yeah. I'm sure a viewer, yeah. so, look at Kilberg's laughing over there. <laughs> 
Uh, and Deirdre also. It, I know. And you, he's, he's nodding his head. Yes. You, you said something I think really huge. Like this gig worker law. I love the service, but like, is it possible they don't have a business model in some states in a couple of years? It's possible, but I would also say that it is unlikely. I mean, Dara Khosra Shahi, SEO, has been working a lot more with regulators than, say, his predecessor, Travis Kalanick. So there's a better chance that they figure this out with regulators rather than get slammed. That said, this is still a possibility, even on the national level, which, as you said, could absolutely crush its business model. On those losses, Brian, I don't know if there's a private company that lost more than they did pre-IPO. Um, the knock on Uber is that they use all of those venture capital dollars to subsidize the business. What do we have left? A taxi business? I'm not so sure. They've gone into delivery. The unit economics, I will give them, are getting better. But you have to sort through free cash flow, stock-based compensation. This is a very tricky company to understand, and it, it has been underperforming the broader markets and the tech sphere since it's been a public company. I lo lo love the service. Met some great drivers. Met some this past weekend down at Jean Marc from Haiti in Naples, Florida. The guy's building a business and, you know, he's a first generation American. So wish him the best. But, Jeff, this is a company stories, where, to yeah. Deirdre's point, you got to really separate the company from the stock. Right. Because we like the company. We like the service. But, man, this stock, there's a lot of headwinds. How much are you going to pay for a burger Delivery. Well, it is so. And take it one step further from a user of Uber to a stock owner. And I don't want to be a stock owner. It feels like Uber's been wearing a zombie Halloween costume ever since its IPO, where it IPO'd at $42. So this is a stock that just has so much uncertainty surrounding it. Yes, the political landscape, when you talk about California, will they classify them as workers or not? That is certain uncertain that we don't like as an investor. But also, I'm going to give you one positive here. Yes, I'm going to give you a positive here. They're rolling out targeted ads, their mobility media division. Maybe that's the opportunity for them to get positive because their net operating income continues to be wildly negative. But what does that yeah. mean, Sully? Their ad revenue in 2020 was $11 million. In 2021, it was $141 million. Their forecast, and of course, it's a forecast, that's going to be over a trillion dollars in 2024. So maybe that saves them. As you're sitting in your Uber, you can get targeted with ads, but I that's don't it? know how that rubber meets the road. I'm waiting for that to happen. You get in the Uber and then it's like, Buy Hanes Brands, the most comfortable. Uh, Deirdre, I can see you kind of itching to get back today, in sorry. here. You don't have to get into an Uber to see those ads. They're now starting to push them through notifications. I agree. I think that this could be, you know, a higher margin business for them. It has been for companies like Instacart. However, they have to be really careful not to be intrusive with their ads. It's going to be a tricky balance. It's not for like sure. what Amazon has done to build, you know, this billion dollar business out of yeah, nowhere. Yeah, it's going to listen. You get in the car. Like at O'Hare, Jeff, it's going to be like, come to Brants of Palatine for the best burgers in the western suburbs. <laughs> and no doubt. Jeff, stick. OK, Deirdre Bosa, Deep Bosa, thank you very much. By the way, we talked about Uber, the CEO of Uber. He knows something about his company. He'll be on Squawk Box tomorrow morning. All right. Pfizer also reporting before the bell tomorrow. Shares riding a three week win streak, but still on pace for their worst year since 2008. Street bracing for a 12 percent drop in sales year over year driven by declining sales and demand for its COVID vaccine, although it did announce it plans to hike prices for the shot by up to four times the current price beginning next year. You go to get COVID shot, it's going to cost you, what was it, 120 or 130 bucks? Analysts also watching for growth in other segments and the impact of cost and supply chain pressures. Obviously, you know, Jeff, I, Pfizer, 
like it or not, has kind of become a COVID stock. I mean, that's they've got all these other businesses, and I kind of feel bad for them because all we talk about is the vaccine now. I mean, there's other things at work. Do you like the stock, though? I do like the stock. I look at Pfizer as an essential name. It certainly became more of an essential name to our economy and our global economy in the wake of COVID-19. With a 4P ratio of 7.5, so I think it makes sense to own this stock. What's fascinating is to see the momentum we've seen in healthcare. We talk about the way this continues to move higher, but what's fascinating, that bridge you just talked about, how they're gonna go from government-funded COVID shots to the commercial market, that's really gonna be fascinating because that 400% increase really moved the whole market. Look at Moderna, it was up 18% just after the fact they came out at Pfizer saying that they're gonna go up to $130 for this COVID shot. So we'll see how that all translates. But technically, I do like owning this stock. It's above its 50-day moving average, about to overtake its 200-day moving average. So a lot of momentum in healthcare. And lastly, I heard on Halftime Report that Stephen Weiss was selling Pfizer, so more the reason to be a buyer, Sully. Oh, he's not even here to defend himself. Kilberg, I come know. on. It's like the Notre Dame offensive line right there. Jeff Kilberg, thank you very much. That's it for Earnings Exchange. All right, still ahead. More than 72 million households will pay zero net federal income tax this year. We'll look at who and how next with Robert Frank. All right, welcome back to The Exchange. Roughly 40% of income tax filers will not be paying any federal income tax this year, but it may not be the demographic you might expect. Robert Frank has more on the always interesting but often confusing world of tax. Yeah, Brian, this is one of those tax issues that just has a huge amount of misinformation around it. So here are the facts. A new study finds that more than 72 million households will pay no federal income taxes this year. That's about 40% of the total, according to the Tax Policy Center. And that number is falling by a lot. In 2020, it was 59% of Americans who paid no federal income tax. Last year, it was 56%. And the main reasons for the drop are higher rate wages, more jobs, and fewer government tax credits. While many say it's the wealthy who don't pay taxes, most of the non-payers are low to middle income earners, especially now that the standard deduction is nearly $26,000 for joint filers. So about 60% of these non-payers make less than $30,000 a year. Another 28% make between $30,000 and $60,000 a year. That's Howard Gleckman of the Tax Policy Center said, the people who don't pay income tax have very little income. Now, only 0.6% of those making more than $190,000 a year will pay no federal income tax this year. And Brian, most of them paid taxes in other years, so it was just one year due to a, maybe a business loss or medical bill that that top quintile did not pay federal income tax. And I want to be very clear because this topic sets people off, and there's a lot of whole... Here's the thing. Number yeah. one, you're talking about net effective federal income taxes. In other words... You can pay federal taxes, but then you get a refund after you file. They also, Correct. of course, do pay FICA, Social Security and Medicare. This is just income tax. Nobody believes this when you bring it up. And the reality is this. If you have two kids, own a home, and make $100,000 a year, even in the Midwest, you're probably paying very little, correct? Because that standard deduction is now $26,000. I'm not saying it's right or wrong. But let's be clear, we're not just talking about people that don't make any money. 
No, you're absolutely right. And it's a really important point about we're just talking about federal income taxes. So like you say, people pay fake FICA. They also pay sales taxes. Often they pay property taxes even through their rent. And you're right. If you have kids, that that child tax credit now is at a much higher level than it was in 2017. The standard deduction means that anyone making less than 30,000 isn't paying taxes. And then you have all the other deductions. So, so you're right. This is net federal income taxes. And you can have still a fairly high income of 50 or 60,000 in some places and still not pay net federal income taxes. But it doesn't mean you're not paying taxes yeah, of that's, some and, kind. And that's got to be very clear because people get jumpy about it. But, but let's be clear. Federal yeah. income taxes go to fund the military. They go to fund the FDA, yeah. food safety, federal education, FICA, Medicare, Social Security. That goes to those programs. The federal government spends more money. They're going to need money. I mean, and so tax law may be changing. We'll see. Robert Frank, a really important story. A lot of confusion around taxes. Thanks for straightening it out for us, Robert. Appreciate it. All right, ahead. Rock on. We're going to have a little fun. The CEO Fender Guitar will join us with an update on their business, how they're doing after the massive COVID boom, and why the average guitar player may buy more than 10 guitars a year or not a year, in their life. Plus, shares of Paramount, they're down. Wells Fargo downgrading the name to underweight. Firm saying it can no longer justify the stock's premium multiple amid an uncertain direct-to-consumer outlook. And they see Paramount Global falling another 30%. Ouch. We're back after this. All right, welcome back. We've been talking with our next guest since the pandemic began when his company Fender couldn't make guitars fast enough. Back in January, CEO Andy Mooney told us that an astounding 16 million Americans picked up a guitar since the beginning of the pandemic. But as inflation persists and people return to the office and normal, whatever, Fender is starting to see demand soften in some areas. We've also seen its input costs increase by 15 to 30 percent. Let's welcome back in Andy Mooney. Andy, good to have you back on. It's Brian Sullivan. Uh, how are sales right now? Uh, sales are starting to uh, soften, um, particularly at the low end. Uh, the high end is continues to be very robust. So some of those, the 60 million number that you quoted was U.S. only. We estimate 30 million incremental players came in during COVID, and some of them are already starting to uh, trade up already. Yeah, and, and making a guitar, especially your guitars, by the way, which are fantastic, is so not only skill-intensive, but material-intensive. From where you sit, do you see inflation coming down? Oh, uh, coming down? Yeah. Uh, I see costs coming down in only a few isolated areas. Transportation uh, would be one. Uh, but almost everything else is heading in the upper direction. Labor costs worldwide. Uh, component costs worldwide, and we still are very much in component parts shortages, particularly in electronics. Yeah, and this you're telling an important story because it's it's we talk about inflation. You know, we're on CNBC. We tend to look at you know numbers and like, oh look, price of balsa wood, or, you know, is down, but the price of the guy that puts the, the, the together, that skilled technician, by the way, takes years to perfect their craft. You know, they're going to be paid more. Yeah, for, for sure. And our Corona factory in California, uh, we're competing with uh, 14 Amazon warehouses in the Inland Empire. And particularly this time of year, 
uh, when they want a lot of labor to deal with the uptick in demand. Uh, it's a very competitive labor market. Yeah. Can you find people? I mean, at all? I'm, I'm, I, I hear this from businesses all over the country. I posted on LinkedIn and Twitter. Nobody believes me that you just can't find people. Uh, it's 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 difficult. Um, we're we're managing through it, uh, but it's uh, it's a constant challenge. Yeah, it is. What do you see as the next challenge for you, Andy? When you're sitting there, as CEO, are you saying, "Hey, guys, we got a plan for a recession here"? You know, in Europe, de- Europe's definitely your accent is not from Arkansas. I mean, you know, you know what UK and Europe is going through right now. How do you see the world? Well, I think uh, Europe broadly will be the most challenging region to manage next year because energy costs are going through the roof. Labor costs uh, are also going up there as well, along with the other inflationary. Fortunately, Asia Pacific is um, very robust right now. Um, It's the fastest growth uh, region. Um, So throughout uh, throughout Southeast Asia, we're doing really well. but yeah, I think Europe's, Europe's going to be a real challenge. And uh, I, the good news is, uh, I think when the dust settles and we start to normalize demand, we'll, it will be at a much higher uh, revenue plateau for the entire industry yeah. than it was pre-COVID. By the way, I put together lists of songs every year, mixtapes. I think last year's best song was 17 Going Under by a guy named Sam Fender. Do you have a deal with F- Sam Fender? Does Fender... Yeah. Yes, yes, we do. We actually uh, have a program called Fender Next, where we actually help uh, aspiring uh, younger artists who are trying to break through to the next level. Yeah. And we we uh, had a, have had a relationship with Sam because he was one of the artists that came through that program. Yeah, uh, and by the way, just an amazing, um, unique voice, far northeastern England. It's got the whole different <laughs> accent going on. Andy Mooney, really appreciate your time of Fender. Thank you. My pleasure. Song is 17 Going Under by Sam Fender, by the way. Check it out. Coming up, a surprising political upset in Brazil's presidential election. Well, the very latest at what it means with SEMA next. All right, welcome back. The Brazilian voter has spoken, and the country has a new leader. Sort of. Here now to explain what it all means for investors is SEMA. Mo- a new leader who was also the old leader. Kind of. Right. Exactly, Brian. Lula da Silva returning to the center stage, securing 50.9% of the vote, the tightest margin of victory in the country's history. The top agenda item will be the economy and his team that he appoints and puts together. So far, the market's reaction has been mixed. The widely held EWZ ETF with nearly $6 billion in assets under management was down 5% this morning. Now it's up about 25 Mario Marconini at Tenio Intelligence writing that not only are markets jittery, but there is also a general concern that Lula may lose credibility with more than the market if he makes a bad choice on who he appoints. Uh, In a similar vein, Bank of America expecting a relief rally if Lula decides to appoint a relatively market-friendly finance minister. However, with a divided Congress, passing bills and infrastructure spending will be a challenge, and that's why experts say he'll have to use his negotiating power and show that he will carry a more centrist agenda. Lula will be sworn into office January 1st. So far, no concession or acknowledgement of the election result from current president Jair Bolsonaro. Brian? Very quickly, Petrobras, uh, why is it down? 
Well, emerging market, I spoke to an emerging market investor, Will Landers at BTG Pactual. Brian, he was saying there is con concern amongst investors about uh, this company maintaining a certain level of independence from the government. This, after all, is a state-owned enterprise. He's an owner of the stock because of its hefty dividend, but he's actually underweight the name because of yeah. just the broader reliance Petrobras has on China. Seema Modi, appreciate it. Thank you very much. Folks, that does it for us here on The Exchange. We'll see you tomorrow. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place.